Hello and welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. Every two weeks, experts from AMBOSS, the medical education platform, interview medical students and healthcare professionals to showcase international perspectives on everything in medical school and beyond the textbook. Welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook, where we provide medical students and physicians with in-depth insights and expert knowledge that goes beyond your traditional medical textbooks. We're your hosts, Sophie Neal. And I'm Tanner Schrank. And today we'll be continuing with our mini-series, Leading Women in Healthcare. This is part one of a two-part interview. Our guest is the inspiring Dr. Sarah Fitzgibbon, General Practitioner and Founder of the Women in Medicine in Ireland Network. Sarah, thank you so much for giving us your time and welcome to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Maybe you could start by just telling us a bit about yourself and taking us through your journey in medicine. Thanks so much. And it's a real pleasure to be here talking with you today. Uh, So I think I was probably maybe around nine or 10 when I first started to say that I would like to be a doctor. And then I realized the positive feedback that saying that induces with the adults around you. So as soon as you start saying something like that, you find that all the adults in the room are saying, oh, what a great idea. And so I proceeded and I was a nerdy kid. It seemed like the natural thing to do. I did well in school, but went to college and did medicine. But I don't think I really realized exactly what it meant to be a doctor until my first day on the wards. And I think that's quite common for many of us. And it was quickly enough that I realized that hospital medicine wasn't going to be for me. I think it was probably my first weekend on call as an intern that I realized that I would probably prefer to be not in a hospital. So I started the process of applying for GP training schemes at that stage. It took me a while. I had to apply three times before I got onto a GP training scheme. And in that time, I had moved from Cork, where I live, and where I had gone to college. I I moved to Galway, not too far away, further up the country. And I actually had started on a psychiatry training scheme. But finally, I did succeed in getting onto the GP training scheme. And I came back to Cork again, because that's what Cork people do, and uh, completed my GP training And I ended up actually joining the practice where I had been a GP registrar. So my training practice, I ended up joining as a partner and stayed there then for almost 15 years in total. Uh, So, yeah, it was a local journey, but certainly a very enjoyable one. Oh, that's amazing. Well, it sounds like you really made all the right moves, you know, according to what you needed and what you felt was the right thing for you, which isn't always, you know, it might sound so simple, but it's not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I think it helped that I had a particular goal in mind. I really did know that general practice was, you know, what I found the most interesting. It really appealed to me. And while the psychiatry certainly was the next best option, I was delighted that I was able to get back into to do the general practice training, which, as I say, was my ultimate goal. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, we're really intrigued by how the Women in Medicine in Ireland Network came to be. Could you tell us a bit more about that and how it all got started? So it happened in 2017. I just spotted a tweet from the Medical Women's Federation, which was an organisation in the UK, and they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. So this was an organisation which had been going since 1917. And yet I'd never heard of them. And it is an organisation specifically for female doctors. So when it started in 1917, obviously, female doctors were really quite new and they realized that they probably needed to get together to support each other in a time when there were so few of them and when there were lots of barriers. They'd really only just started uh, being qualified and having the opportunity to to work in both in the UK and in Ireland. And they realized they needed an organization to support each other and to overcome the barriers that they were facing. And 
as I was looking at it and I was thinking, well, isn't it strange that there's still an organization like that 100 years later? Why would we need an organization for women doctors now? Because in my experience, I had felt that my journey through medicine and my you know, career to that date had been very equal, very equitable. I hadn't felt that I had faced any barriers, but there was something about it that just triggered a question in my head. And so I tweeted out that question. I, just, I, I didn't have that many followers at the time, but I asked the other doctors that I knew if they thought that something like that would be worthwhile, that would be something that women doctors in Ireland might be looking for because the Medical Women's Federation would be in the UK and, and, and we didn't have anything like that in our own country. And it was amazing the response that I got, actually, within a very short time. There was 100 women had contacted me and said that, yes, they really did think it was a good idea. And these were women who ranged from you know, younger women, you know, starting off in their career to women who'd already been through the process and were retired. And there was a resounding support for the concept of an organization that was specifically for women doctors. And so from that tweet, I decided that I would see if I could set up a, a website, see if I could set up an organization. I sent out a little survey to those 100 first women, sort of saying, well, what do we do now? Because uh, I didn't know. And we came up with the very innovative concept of having a conference, a meeting of getting together. And that's what we did. So our first conference was in September 2018. So that was the first Women in Medicine in Ireland Network Conference. And when I first came up with the acronym, so the W-I-M-I-N, I have to say my husband thought I was joking, but <laughs> we've stuck with it since then. And it rolled off the tongue quite easily. I talk about women all the time in my life. And people are never really sure if I'm talking about W-I-M-I-N or W-O-M-E-N. But I know what I'm talking about. I'm now going to worry you to pronounce the acronym, but I love it. <laughs> it's fantastic. And how interesting that from your personal experience, you didn't encounter those barriers. But then from a single tweet, a couple of thoughts, you start to see actually that it is still there. And that this then sparked that journey for you. I mean, what do you see as the greatest barriers that are now facing women in medicine in Ireland today? And how do you feel the network has helped to overcome these obstacles? So I think the, the greatest barrier is that belief that everything is OK. So this right. complacency, yeah. so exactly what I was experiencing myself and, and what lots of my, my colleagues and friends would have been as well. We were firmly of the belief that there must be gender equity, that there must be gender equality. We were in the early 2000s. This wasn't the 1970s. It wasn't the 1950s. You know, this concept of women having it all. We were consultants. We were general practice partners. It seems so much on the surface that there is nothing to be worried about, that there are no barriers. And we have this false belief that genders are treated equitably and, yeah. and equally. You know, a really good example is the majority of doctors don't know that there's a gender pay gap in medicine and a significantly greater percentage of male doctors don't believe in a gender pay gap compared to women doctors. But still quite a lot of women doctors don't believe in it. So even if they're sort of explained and told what a gender pay gap is, because that can be a little bit tricky for people compared yeah. to the concept of equal pay for equal work, if you say it to people, they'll say, well, that can't exist in medicine. Yeah. And there's just this sort of shutdown. And we know that this happens. We live in a society where we are immersed in a world where people are treated differently according to their gender. And it takes a little time to step back and realize that that's actually to the detriment of one of the genders compared to one of the others. And it can be a little bit of a mind shift for people. So I would say that that is the biggest barrier. And the way that we overcome that is just by talking about it. So just by raising awareness, 
So by simply talking about the fact that there are differences in experiences for women compared to men, if we talk about the fact that some specialties still have significantly greater percentage of men in them. So the classic example is surgery, but even within surgery, things like orthopedic surgery, maxillofacial surgery. In Ireland, certainly these would have very small numbers of women and much more men. If you look a little bit closer at the specialties where we have more women compared to men, so these would be things like primary care, so in general practice, pediatrics, palliative care, psychiatry. If you start to think about it, you realize that many of those specialties are actually the ones with the lower remuneration. So they tend to be lower status. They tend to be inverted commas, more caring. So like, you know, we say palliative care, psychiatry, so very emotionally intense and yet that there would be much less opportunity. You know, in, in Ireland, we have both a, a public and a private healthcare system. So in terms of earning power, if that was your motivation, something like those specialties would have a lower earning power. And this is also what contributes to something like the gender pay gap and the gender pension gap for female doctors in Ireland. Wow. I mean, when you say it, again, it's something that how would you overcome that just by having a conversation, talking about it? It might sound really simple, but it's so complex. It's so important. And you can be in your circle of friends and not actually be in contact with somebody who has experienced that and therefore you're not aware of it. And so something as simple as having a conversation is really going to go a long way, right, to further the cause and get people aware and actually make a change. Absolutely. And it was actually when I was participating in a conversation with two friends of mine who were both hospital consultants and we were at one of these play areas with our children and we were sitting and having a coffee and the two of my friends started talking about their experiences in operating theatres. So both of them would work in an operating theatre environment. And as they were talking and my brain was saying, oh, my God, this is, you know, the experiences that they were having in terms of, you know, sort of microaggressions, but higher level discrimination. And as I was listening to them and they were listening to each other, we all just sort of had a light bulb moment. Yeah. And we're saying this is happening to us now. This isn't 50 years ago. Yeah. And we also know that this is happening to colleagues because they were they're there in the operating theater watching it happen. Right. And we can see from the very stark research done recently in terms of surgical training in the UK, which would show the rates of harassment, of assault for female surgical trainees going through surgical training in the UK. It's there and now, thankfully, it has been quantified. But again, a lot of that would have been maybe dismissed in conversation or maybe, oh, that only happens to a small number of people or the classic, you know, uh, you know, a person might have deserved it because of their behavior. You know, there's yeah. still some of that victim blaming would still go on. And it's only by talking about it and sharing experiences that we build that strength together to be able to say, actually, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Absolutely. And to even step outside of yourself and realise that you have been part of a system for such a long time where you feel these things are okay, right? We get socialised into thinking that it's all okay, you know, and that and that's nobody's fault. That is, that's the way society works. Most people will find themselves firmly believing yeah. that women are better at cleaning toilets and vacuuming stairs and changing nappies than men are. And there is no scientific yeah. evidence to say that there are specific skills that come with having two X chromosomes that make you better at scrubbing the inside of a toilet. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, congratulations. I think that is amazing. So inspiring and having those conversations and starting that awareness and, and continuing it. I'm really impressed. So thank you for sharing some of the information about it. And I, I don't know how you find your time because in addition to your general practitioner work and founding WIMIN, you've also got your own blog, which is called Adventures of a Sick Doctor. 
which provides a unique perspective combining doctor and patient experiences. So I wanted to ask, how has your personal health shaped the way you treat your patients? I started writing the blog around about 2015, uh, January 2015, and that was because I had been diagnosed in November 2014 with uh, stage four colorectal carcinoma. I was 37. My youngest baby had just been born in March 2014. And so she was about seven or eight months when I started to lose a lot of weight. I had night sweats for the students who are listening. This is where you, I would have quizzed you uh, in advance to say, what would you say to a 37-year-old woman who had night sweats, lost 5 kg, and I had right uh, upper quadrant pain? And so my first thought was that maybe I had lymphoma or TB, and we did some tests and I didn't. But when I got the right upper quadrant pain, I was delighted because I was sure I must have gallstones. Didn't quite explain the weight loss, but I decided I would go with that as my working diagnosis. And I had a fantastic GP who really helped me go through this step by step. It turned out I had multiple liver metastases that were causing me pain, which was obviously, you know, we know that that disease in the liver doesn't cause pain until it's stretching the capsule. So that was happening for me. And the primary was found in my sigmoid colon. So that was a bit of a surprise at the age of 37. I started on chemotherapy very quickly and I was extraordinarily lucky that the chemotherapy began to work. And then I had some selective internal radiation therapy. So this kind of advanced radiotherapy to my liver and that improved my metastases. Again, incredibly, I went on to have a liver resection. I've had loads of different treatments. And the bottom line is that I have had no evidence of any cancer since 2018. So after four years of pretty intense treatments between chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgeries, it came to the point where when I was having scans that there was no new disease, no active disease. And I've been incredibly fortunate that that is still the case. When I was training, when I was a student, whenever you heard somebody had stage four cancer, you knew that really, realistically, their life expectancy was a year or two. So for me to be year on year since 2014, so we have nine years now that I've been lucky enough to be in this position has been pretty incredible. The blog was, first of all, designed to write down everything for my family because I was getting a little bit sick of, you know, having to write texts to multiple people. I'm not even sure if we had WhatsApp groups back then. And it was just a way of me being able to express what was happening without having to phone everybody up or talk to people individually. And I never really thought of it as being a public blog. But over time, different people began to read it. And it was nice then to be able to connect with other people who were maybe going through the same thing or, or similar, you know, traumatic, maybe health events. And obviously, with the perspective of being a doctor, it definitely does add a different layer to what I was experiencing. And I suppose I was learning a little bit about that, about what it means to be a doctor who has an illness or to be a patient in an environment where people also know that you're a doctor. And there's certainly, you know, different experiences that you would have compared to somebody who's not medical. So that's what I wrote about. I actually haven't blogged for quite a while, which is a good sign. And it is the adventures of a sick doctor. I don't, I'm currently not sick, but I have been thinking about getting back to it and uh, rambling. I do find the, the writing is very therapeutic. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so happy, first of all, to hear that you are better, that you're not sick, that you made it through what sounded like a really, really difficult time. And as you said, generally, medically, the odds were against you, essentially. Yep. And I'm so happy to hear that. And really amazing that you started the blog. What a great idea. So yeah, really, really happy to hear that. And that the, the blog was helpful for you in that way too. It's, it's very, very good read. So we'll include that in our show notes. If anybody wants to check that out. 
Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and telling us more about your work with WIMIN and your blog and, and your work as a general practitioner. It's been really insightful, really inspiring. And we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wonderful. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Amboss podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for the conclusion of this interview. I'm Sophie Neal. I'm Dr. Tanner Schrank. And this has been Amboss Beyond the Textbook. The links in the description can give you a more in-depth understanding of these concepts. If you like this episode, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the AMBOSS platform for your medical studies and sign up for a free five-day trial at AMBOSS.com.